Hello, fellow Pontifans, you Pontifabulous listeners of the most Pontifactual podcast on the planet. I'm Lantern Jack, host of the Ancient Greece Declassified podcast. Now, if you're a history geek or a podcast freak on a listening streak, then I invite you to add my show to your podcast flow. That's Ancient Greece Declassified, yo. We're talking Odysseus and Calypso, temples protected by UNESCO, the source of inspiration for Michelangelo and Henry David Thoreau, and Marcus Tullius Cicero. It was all Greek to them, but it doesn't have to be all Greek to you, because on my show, we break it down for you and explore ancient Greek history in a fun and accessible manner, yet always based on the latest and best research. The show doesn't always rhyme, but tune in and you're guaranteed a good time. That's Ancient Greece Declassified. And now, sit back and enjoy another pontifabulous and very popey episode. Hello, and welcome to Pontifax. I'm Fry. And I'm Bree, ranking all of the popes from Peter to Francis. And this is episode 41 Pope Anastasius the First. Oh, we had someone's dad was Anastasius. Oh, you did remember. Okay, so when we did Antipope Felix II, and I said that his father's name was Anastasius, your reaction was, It's me, Anastasius! So I was wondering <laughs> if we were going to have a repeat. Before we started recording, I told you that I needed to look something up. I wanted to make sure I referenced the right episode in which that happened in. This is Pope Anastasius, who is not that guy's dad. Okay. So, are you ready for him? Uh, yeah, sure. I'm as ready as I'm ever gonna be. That sounds about right. So, as per the Liber Pontificalis, Anastasius was born in Rome, and his father's name was Maximus. He was a Christian. He entered the church, and as Father Alban Butler says, he had, quote, by many combats and labors, acquired a high reputation for his virtues and abilities, end quote. He distinguished himself and rose through the ranks, and that's all we have on that. Oh, that's, I thought, yeah, we've been getting like some longer, beefier dudes, and now we're back to some bare bones. Yeah, we had some chonky popes, and uh, that is not the case here, so he, we are already at his papacy. He was elected to the papacy on November 27th of 399, which, if we look at the dates recorded in our last episode, means that he was literally elected the day after Pope Sericius died. I mean, no no long sedi vacante for them. Yeah, they wasted zero time if we are to take that date at face value. However, the Liber Pontificalis mentioned, it, it always, right when you go to the end of a Pope's section in that, in that book, it will tell you exactly how many days the bishopric was vacant for. It covers, like, every sede vacante, even if it's only, like, a couple days or a week or maybe a month while they're voting. This is, like, the day after. In this version of the Liber Pontificalis, it mentions that the bishopric was empty for 30 days between the two, so either something's gotten confused or those dates are just lined up because it was like someone later on went, end of papacy, start of papacy. Maybe, maybe not. We don't know. And I am meandering on these little details because this is going to be a short episode. So, the Liber Pontificalis, our main source for poor Pope Anastasius, ascribes a couple little decrees to Pope Anastasius as per usual. Um, and the one that we kind of stands out as that apostolic succession one that we usually address is that he issued instructions that priests must stand 
and bow their head when they read from the Gospels to show adequate reverence to Christ. And this is uh, something that they needed an actual guideline for. Although this time, there isn't actually a whole lot of discussion among historians to credit it to a later pope. So this one might actually be for real this time. Usually it's something that they just kind of throw in there and go, ooh, we'll give him this, even though this totally happened by a later pope. This might actually have been something that Anastasius actually did. Well, what a ridiculous thing to have to say to somebody. (laughs) I know. It's a very strange guideline to have to put into place. And it's also a very strange one for the Liber Pontificalis to actually get right for a change, so... Like, don't stare at the ceiling when you do this. Bow your head. Give it your adequate attention. (laughs) Now, I always wonder with these ones, what's happening in the church that they feel that they actually have to legislate this? So was everyone just bored out of their minds when the Gospels were being read? Or did they catch two priests making funny faces at one another? Like, what is happening that he went, no... I gotta make a rule for this now. He is also said to have established a new rule that stated that any priest who arrived from overseas to Rome should not be received into the clergy by the Church of Rome unless he carried a letter signed by five bishops from his own locality vouching for his reception. Quote, because at the time the Manichaeans were found in the city of Rome. So if you are a priest, From anywhere else in the empire, you cannot just show up in Rome and be like, I am a priest, welcome me in, unless you actually have basically a letter of reference, because maybe Manny and friends are trying to infiltrate the church in some way at this time. Man, Manny and friends, go away already. Oh, that's not gonna happen. (laughs) Never. (laughs) But I am still 100% still picturing Black Books Manny trying to infiltrate (laughs) the church. Writing some terrible little, like, letter of reference signed by himself. That's a good headcanon. And considering that I'm further ahead in the research and I'm still talking about the Manichaeans, this is a headcanon that has grown and grown and grown, and we'll talk about that in the future. So, Anastasius. He also built a basilica called the Crescentian Basilica, quote, in the second district on the Via Mamertini in the city of Rome which does not exist anymore. So there's that. But, so moving away from the Liber Pontificalis, most of what we have to talk about in Anastasius's papacy is to do with combating heresy. Sort of. First off, it is said that he encouraged the Episcopates in North Africa to continue to fight against Donatism. We've talked about the Donatists for a while in more detail in episode 34 on Militiades and again in episode 36 on Pope Mark I. And since all we have for this episode with Anastasius basically saying, keep fighting the good fight, but the big one and the hallmark of Anastasius's papacy is Origen. Do you remember Origen? I do, and I recently saw how his name is spelled, and it was not the letters that my brain had made what what did you what did you expect his name to be i'm curious now how did you spell it in your mind just kind of like origin generally it is spelled by most uh, conventionally accepted sources as o r i g e n yeah it was the the g e n that got me i was like oh it's very strange 
So we've been talking about Origen as a theologian and not just a source back since episode 18 on Calixtus. Mm-hmm. He, he was up in the tutoring or whatever. That's exactly right. He was the Christian tutor of Emperor Alexander Severus. He lived in the later part of the second century, and he was that, quote, speculative theologian that we talked about. And if you want to know more about him in Ponchin's episode, which is episode 20, we outlined some of the aspects of his theology, as well as the synod that was held by Ponchin, which was to presumably condemn Origen and his teachings. But like we said in that episode, there is actually no historical source to determine how that synod had concluded or what decisions they had made. But that was a long time ago now. Origen has been dead since 253. So why are we coming back to this man on the cusp of 400? I don't know. Well, mainly because Tyrannius Rufinus of Aquileia. <laughs> Sorry, keep going. The Tyrannosaurus Rex man? Yeah, <laughs> We We have mentioned him before. Uh, he is the church historian monk we mentioned very, very briefly last week, and also way back in episode six, because this is the man who translated the Clementine literature and why it still survives today. Tyrannius Rufinus is the reason that we have Pope fanfiction. Yes, I love Pope fanfiction. So Rufinus, by the way, was also a good friend of Jerome, and clearly had very similar passions to Jerome. While Jerome was translating and unifying the Bible, Rufinus was also translating Greek canon and extant pieces of Christian literature into Latin, including, as it happens, the work of Origen. At this point, despite the fact that there may have been a previous condemnation under Pontian, Origen was still someone who was discussed and admired by many theologians, including both Rufinus and Jerome. And you have to remember that Latin has now been the language of the church since the 200s, and Pope Victor was the first one to start writing in Latin. So a great deal of these non-biblical sources haven't been read by the general laity for quite a while, because they're written in Greek. So translating these older pieces of Christian theology now makes them way more accessible. It's kind of like a little tiny mini renaissance already. So Rufinus translates some of Origen's works, including the Peri Archon, or First Principles, and that gets it back into the hands of the clergy, who are now reading it across the empire. And some of these ideas that show up in Origen's work start to re-raise some questions and some concerns. Jerome, for one, who seemed to set his original appreciation for Origen aside, openly criticized the faulty orthodoxy in the text, as well as his friend Rufinus for not going far enough in his own commentary on the words to attack the text where it didn't meet with the doctrinal rigors of the church, give or take. So basically, he's looking at his friend who's translating these works, and he's going, why aren't you writing your own refutations at the same time that you're translating this? The fact that you're translating this and not commenting on how wrong this guy is makes you shady. He wants him to do a sporking of it? That's exactly what he wants Rufinus to do. And he's criticizing his friend openly and publicly for this. So this is enough that Jerome and Rufinus are actually going to fall out with one another at this point. And Rufinus kind of is like, no you. And he goes on to translate more works in this vein. 
including the Apology of Pamphilus for Origen, which is a defense of Origen from the same era. And he started this nasty letter-writing campaign that starts, because we haven't seen one of those for a while. No. So we have Jerome publishing against Rufinus, and Rufinus publishing against Jerome. And those are the titles of the work that they actually were publishing at this time. Jerome against Rufinus. And Rufinus against Jerome. It <laughs> distracts. Distracts of the 4th century. Yo. So... <laughs> But this isn't about Rufinus and Jerome, besides the two having a bro fight. It's really about the fact that the translated origin works are really freaking people out a little. And this comes to a head when the Bishop of Alexandria, Theophilius, writes to the Pope concerned with Origen's, quote, fidelity to Christian teachings, and he asks the Pope to intervene and clarify exactly what the Church's stance was on Origen's idea and most likely to stop the flame war between Jerome and Rufinus, because it's getting out of hand. So Anastasius agrees, and he calls the council to sit in Rome to actually examine and debate the merits of Origen's theology. A whole council to talk about Origen. To talk about this man who has been dead for 200 years. So he summons Rufinus to defend the orthodoxy of Origen, Although he didn't make it, he, he will actually write to the Pope because of, on this behalf. And the council comes to the agreement that Origen's teachings definitely weren't faithful to the doctrine of the Catholic Church. Therefore, heterodox. Therefore, condemned. And not to be taught, followed, or expanded on. And so this is the first official condemnation that we will see of Origen, but it will definitely not be the last. So this is the first time we actually have the church officially preserved in writing saying this man is heterodox, even though it might have happened in the past. We don't really have that information. Now, Anastasius's condemnation of Origen has been preserved, and we have a copy of a letter written by him to Simplicianus, the Bishop of Milan, outlining the decisions of the council. And because we have very little in this episode, I am going to read it to you. Quote, it is felt right that a shepherd should bestow great care and watchfulness upon his flock. In like manner, too, from his lofty tower, the careful watchman keeps a lookout day and night on behalf of the city. So also in the hour of tempest when the sea is dangerous, the shipmaster suffers keen anxiety, lest the gale and the violence of the waves shall dash his vessel upon the rocks. It is with similar feelings that the reverend and honorable Theophilius, our brother and fellow bishop, ceases not to watch over the things that make for salvation, that God's people in the different churches may not, by reading Origen, run into awful blasphemies. Being informed, then, by a letter of the aforesaid bishop, we inform your holiness that we, in like manner, who are set in the city of Rome, in which the prince of the apostles, the glorious Peter, first founded the church and then by his faith strengthened it, to the end no man may be contrary to the commandment, read these books which we have mentioned, have condemned the same, and have with earnest prayers urged the strict observance of the precepts of which God and Christ have inspired the evangelists to teach. We have charged men to remember the words of the venerable Apostle Paul, prophetic and full of warning. If any then preach another gospel unto you, then that which we have preached unto you, let him be accursed. Holding fast, therefore, this precept we have intimidated that everything written in days gone by origin, 
that is contrary to our faith is even by us rejected and condemned. I send this letter to your holiness by the hand of the presbyter Eusebius. Oh my god, still, they're still happening. They're everywhere. A man filled with glowing faith and love for the Lord. He has shown to me some blasphemous chapters which made me shudder as I passed judgment on them. If Origen has put forth any other writings, you are to know that they and their author are alike condemned by me. The Lord have you in safe keeping, my lord and brother deservedly held in honor. So, oh, we must so watch over the flock. Oh, goodness, this work, it's just so terrible, and we must condemn it, make sure that everybody condemns it, because I am the successor of Peter and Eusebius. So, as a result of this decisive action, Anastasius becomes very popular with Jerome, who praised him in writing repeatedly and called him a man of great holiness, rich in ascetic poverty, quote, endued with the apostolic solicitude and zeal. So, because he sided with him instead of Rufinus, he's like, ooh, I'm going to write lovely things about this pope since I wrote salty things about the last pope. So he's made good friends there. And of course, because Jerome's work has survived, we have that. And he wasn't the only one who had great things to say about this pope. Both St. Augustine of Hippo and Paulinus of Nola, who we mentioned last week having not really liked Pope Sericius, praised Anastasius of being a model of piety and sanctity. And so as far as the papacy goes, this was a brilliant move on his part to condemn Origen, both for doctrine as well as public relations. But unfortunately, this is a short episode, and we don't have much to go on for a reason, because uh, Anastasius died shortly after this council and its dissemination of the letters. Really? Yep. He's done. He died on December 19th of 401, of natural causes, as far as we can tell, although it sounds like he might have gotten sick. I mean, that's natural causes. Abrupt and violent natural causes? Exactly. Abrupt and violent natural causes. The entry in the Roman Martyrology on him gives slightly more insight, saying that on this day, December 19th, quote, The death of Pope St. Anastasius I, a man of extreme poverty and apostolic solicitude, so, uh, maybe he was asceticizing himself to death. Oh, like maybe he didn't eat good? It's possible. I mean, that's all. It just says extreme poverty and apostolic solicitude. So, maybe. He dies quite suddenly, so it's a thing. Sat outside in the cold too long. <laughs> Sounds about right. Does it get that cold in Rome? It can. Okay. Not often, but it can. Jerome also comments on his death, saying, quote, But he was soon taken away. For it was not fitting that the head of the world should be struck off during the episcopate of one so great. He was removed, no doubt, that he might not seek to turn away by his prayers the sentence of God passed once for all. So, this quote is a reference to Jerome being rather grateful that Anastasius died before 410, which is definitely something we're going to be dealing with a lot next week, because it's when Rome gets sacked. Mm. So get ready for that. Get, get ready. Spoilers. Yeah. Rome, the gothic sack of Rome is coming in 410, and that's going to be in our next episode. So Jerome is at least happy that Anastasius wasn't Pope for that one. So according to most sources, Pope Anastasius was buried in the Catacomb of Pontian, but the Liber Pontificalis says that he was buried in his own cemetery in the area of Ursus Pilatius, more likely the Catacomb of Pontian, because most sources say that, and future popes of this era will also end up here 
including his alleged son, our next pope. Oh, what? Sorishus told you not to bang. <laughs> yeah. Um, we're going to get to that in a minute. But uh, Father Alban Butler also adds that his remains have been moved and translated multiple times, and that now the greater part of him rests in the Church of St. Praxedes in Rome. Other pieces of him could be elsewhere. But that is Anastasius, and we must rate him. Papatum infallium. Okay, so here the big one, obviously, is the condemnation of origin. It's... It's hard to say whether this is good or bad or even necessary, but he is the first to do so, setting a long tradition of Origen as a controversial figure in the church who will be condemned and uncondemned and recondemned and never fully quite understood. So we could maybe argue that Anastasius is partly responsible for Origen maybe not getting a fair shake. There are some sources who suggest that even Anastasius and his contemporaries might not have even understood the ideas of origin. So there's that. You're too dumb to understand me, bro. It's possible. I mean, maybe they didn't understand the speculative nature of the theology that was happening in the second century while everything was still a mess. We could give him points for the head bowing thing. And although he doesn't make a strong impression on us because of his short papacy, he did make really strong impressions on influential church figures like Jerome and Paulinus and St. Augustine. So there's more to this man than we currently have access to. So what would you like to give him? I think I can only muster up like a two. Yeah, I mean, I don't even know if I can go that much. I think I'm going to give him a one because I don't really think the condemnation of origin was a particularly helpful or useful thing. So yeah. He'll get a three. I'm just glad that he thought about orthodoxy enough to call a council. 200 and something years too late. I don't know. No. <laughs> Fructus prohibits him. Well, this might be his category because he may have fathered the next pope. Prize. You're not supposed to. Sabrisha said no. <laughs> I saved one good story here, kind of, sort of. This is sourced from Jerome in letter 130 to Demetrius who refers to our next pope, who is Pope Innocent I, as being the son of Anastasius. However, in this letter, Jerome also makes it clear that Anastasius's son was born before he entered the clergy. So, maybe scandal, maybe not. They're trying to legitimize him. Yeah, but here's the other thing. All of the other sources call the next pope either an Albanian or from the region of Albano Laziale, outside of Rome, son of a man called Incentius. So this is probably not true. So we have to consider a couple things here. First, we need to consider the fact that Jerome was quite close to the Pope. So it's a weird thing to say if it wasn't true. Uh, some sources want to compromise on this idea and say that maybe Anastasius's baptismal name was Innocentius, and that he changed it when he became Pope but our first documented case of a pope actually changing his name is still over a hundred years away, so unlikely. What if it's some terrible joke that Jerome <laughs> likes to put in, like, he's like, ha ha ha, Anastasius is innocent's dad, ha ha. And it's like an inside joke that we just do not understand. You know what, you're probably closer to the truth than you realize. <laughs> um, so, basically, if you read modern translation of this epistle, the text now is often translated as, like, saintly innocent, the spiritual son of Anastasius, 
and his successor in the apostolic see rather than just the word son. It's spiritual son. So basically what they're thought now, and, and there is a great article on this, uh, if you want to read it, on JSTOR. It's called Anastasius I and Innocent I Reconsidering the Evidence of Jerome by Jeffrey D. Dunn. And he argues that the literal read of Phileus, which is the word for biological son, is a misinterpretation and that it should be seen as spiritual son and that this is a metaphor that contemporary readers would have understood. So you're kind of right that, in the sense, Jerome wrote down something, maybe not a joke, but he wrote it down in a way that everybody would have understood that he meant, like, successor or protege, the mentor relationship, rather than actual biological son. And we'll see in future epistles that Innocent himself will refer to many of his bishops as Phileus Maeus, or my son as well. So it's probably uh, just a mistranslation and a misunderstanding of a term that would have had a very obvious second meaning at the time. Also, the historian who wrote that article is really, really, really annoyed over how many sources just repeat the statement that Anastasius fathered the next pope as fact without having dug into it any deeper, so... He's real mad about that. Did it happen? And if it did, is it scandal? I mean, I, I personally don't see this one having any sort of validity. And then there's the whole thing with Jerome. I mean, obviously, clergy members were not able to marry once they had been ordained. But having been married and having a family didn't exclude you from joining the priesthood. And clearly, it still doesn't today, as we know with Deacon Dad. So and he's not a priest yet. No, but if he was a priest and somehow became all the way to Pope, would it be scandalous that you are his child? Probably not. Like, that is not really... It would be excellent if we could do Pope Deacon Dad, but... <laughs> it would be very strange. Oh, man, my brain just went down a rabbit hole of amusing thought. <laughs> There's too many, like, factors to start there, because Deacon Mom would have to die, and Deacon Dad would have to be like, now it's time to go into the church, and he would have to spend his time getting his priestly nonsense. <laughs> I mean, to be fair, I want to be clear that I am not wishing any harm on Deacon Mom. I love Deacon Mom, too, but, I just, but yeah. My, my point is that if the fact that they were able to have children before entering the priesthood, and that's kind of what Jerome might be suggesting anyways, if he actually thought he was his son. So I, I kind of like the idea that it was a practical joke that no one understands anymore. So do we give him points for it? No. I'm going to give him a one just because it's created so much buzz in the sources. And really, there are so many sources who just accept it as fact. This is fine. <laughs> so um, he's going to get a one in that category because it's amusing. All right. Well, I mean, I might have gave him one, but you gave him one and that's all I, That's all he needs. He doesn't need a two. We can give him a half point each and then yes. we can call it a one. Seculari impactum. Okay, so we have almost nothing to go on here, so I'm going to suggest that maybe condemning Origen as not in the faith with the teachings of the Catholic Church makes him semi-secular? No. No, I know. It was a long <laughs> shot. I, I just had to at least try, so he gets a zero. It's a hard no for me, Brie. I know it is, but, you know, we had to try. I have to come up with something to say in this category. Fossium Sanctus. Let's look at this man's face. There you go. Who does he look like? He looks like somebody. I know. Who is it? 
I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I see it though. I do. I, I, I could, I could feel the resemblance. Um, I don't actually know who it's supposed to be, but <laughs> he looks like somebody. He looks like that guy in that thing, you know? But otherwise, it's fairly unremarkable. I mean, he's got kind of like the, the one piece of like surfer hair kind of dipping in front of his eyeballs. He looks like somebody. It's gonna bother me now. Well, what do we want to give him for bothering us with it? So <laughs> three. You're gonna give him a three? Three for being a bother. Okay, I yeah, I guess I'll match that just because I don't. I'm sure once we know exactly who we're thinking of, we might feel differently. So if you are looking at this photo in the future after listening to this episode, let us know who you think it is. As for now, he's getting a 1.5 in this category. And he has one of the pictures from the artist who never improves. Uh, you know, the extreme poverty and, uh, and apostolical solicitude comes to mind here. Because that looks like a starving man. That definitely does look like, ooh, wow. He looks more like a bird. It's just, that is a man who has no joy in his life and has seen some... I don't know what, but just look, he just looks so withered and wasted and exhausted. And I don't like anything about it. So I'm glad we're not scoring on this one. Tempus Pontificus. He was Pope for two years. November 27th, 399 to December 19th, 401. Score of 0 0.5. The only one who debates differently is Alvin Butler, who says three years and ten days. But no one else says that, so he's not getting points for that. All right, everybody, it's the canon bonus round! Do, 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 do. Yes, he is a saint. His feast day is December 19th. He is not a patron saint of anything, so we get to make him one. That feeling you get when something's on the tip of your tongue, but you have no idea what it is. There's probably a German word for that. Yes. The feeling of not being able to identify. Yep, that feeling. So, if we can't find the German word for it, because I'm sure there is one, uh, he will be the patron saint of that feeling when you can't quite identify something and it's in the back of your head and you, ooh, you know what it is, but ah, uh, it's not there. And it wakes you up at 3 a.m. Yep, and you'll, you'll find it and you'll come screaming and you'll send me a message on Facebook. So, that brings us to his final score, which is a seven. <laughs> oh. oh, that is quite sad, but fitting. I mean, there's not much to talk about here. He's going to rake Lily, so yeah. I, do I really need to ask you if he has all the papal pizzazz of a papal bull? That's a no thanks. Yeah. No, I can't make an argument for him. I mean, we had two in a row. That's generous considering. Yeah, no no for Vicious Sericious, and no for Anastasius. Let's see if his potential son can do better next week. His son, not son. His son, not son. But before we get to that, we have a Pope Watch. On March 29th, Pope Francis issued the first of the new laws and guidelines promised by the PBC Council dealing with the protection of minors. Well, that wasn't super long. Yeah, it didn't take long at all. That was about a month from the conclusion of the council. So the new laws were issued motu proprio, which is issued by the Pope personally of his own accord, and they will be in effect as of June 1st. 
They are intending to, quote, further strengthen the institutional and regulatory framework for preventing and counteracting abuse of minors and vulnerable adults. The source that I used to cover this, who broke the story right away, is Hannah Brockhouse at the Catholic News Agency. She's always really, really active on Twitter and gives me so much information. So, quick breakdown of what that looks like. Uh, officials of the Roman Curia slash Vatican City State are now under mandatory obligation to report any knowledge or informed suspicion of abuse, quote, without delay. Uh, the only thing that there is an exception for is information that is heard during confessional, because confessional is protected by the sacramental seal and cannot be repeated or shared ever, 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 ever. The initial outlined consequence for a failure to report abuse is a fine of between a thousand and five thousand euros, and that's just kind of their starting point. This is the main initiative of the apostolic letter, but it also includes some new definitions and provisions for various other things. So those things are the Vatican hiring process now requires an actual evaluation of a prospective employee's, quote, suitability to interact with minors, which you'd think would have been there already, but there it is. They have also expanded the definition of vulnerable persons to, quote, anyone in an infirm state, physical or mental deficiency, or deprivation of personal freedom that in fact even occasionally limits their capacity to intend or want in any way resist the offense. This also includes minors by a legal definition, so there's that. The letter also reiterated the importance of fair and impartial trials and a respect for the presumption of innocence before proven guilty, and it issued a statute of limitation of 20 years. And we will end that with a quote from the Pope Francis letter, and it says, The protection of minors and vulnerable persons is an integral part of the evangelical message of the church, and all her members are called to spread around the world. Everyone has the duty to welcome minors and vulnerable persons with generosity and to create a safe environment for them. This requires a continuous and profound conversion in which personal holiness and moral commitment can help to promote the credibility of the evangelical message and to renew the educational mission of the church. So there's that. It's There are actual actions being being brought into place. These are the first to come out of it only a month later. So there's a lot of time to see more, hopefully a lot more. So that's good. I'm glad to see it in effect. And with that, we come to thank yous because we have some uh, temporal punishments to absolve people of. So we need to thank Valerie Croft and Peter Dedman. Ego te absolvo. And beyond that, we need to thank Totalis Rankium and Rex Factor for supporting us as always. And all of you who are listening, because we are creeping up on a milestone all out of the blue that we weren't really expecting to hit very soon. So thank you for downloading. Thank you for listening. Thank you for sharing with your friends and getting the word out about us. Our humble Popey podcast is growing. So that's pretty cool. And with that, we can say thank you and goodbye. Bye. Bye.